0: Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, episode 18, The Flapperon. Hello, I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher of On Milwaukee, and I'm joined again by Jeff Wise, aviation expert. I'm still going with MH370, bon vivant, because we're speaking some French in this one, Jeff.
1: Un peu, un peu, Just un This is going to be funny. <laughs> it's, not,
0: it's not a funny topic, but I think my French is going to be funny because, uh, I don't know, I took quite a bit of it in high school and college, mm-hmm. and I still am terrible at it, but you 're yeah. currently like doing the duolingo thing, right I am. I wish I had admitted that oh well i 'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back after a uh, we, we, we did a pretty different kind of episode last week, so I think people are ready to get back into the chronology of things. yeah last week, we presented our big teaser episode, and right. we wrapped uh, episode seventeen around that, which was sort of miscellaneous. Right. Uh, this week we're 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 getting right back into it, Jeff. We're going to talk yeah. about debris and flaperons and and
1: Yeah, we had barnacology and such. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. It's all very interesting. We had left our listeners and viewers uh at this sort of edge of a cliff where for the first year and a half basically 15 months of the mystery there was this expectation that there should be some floating debris, nothing had been seen from the air, nothing had washed ashore. In Australia. And so the expectation was, well, there should have been something, where is it? Well, lo and behold, there it is. A piece washes up on La Réunion, our first bit of French. Yes, sir. Um, this, is, this is an island that is owned by France. Um And so it is under French uh, administration. So now the first piece of wreckage. Now at first, of course, this is in July of 2015. And no one knew if this is what it was. There was a kind of a mystery, but it seemed like this piece of airplane had had washed ashore.
0: Let's talk about exactly what happened. So it's 8.30 a.m. Okay. on July 29th, 2015. And on the northeastern shore of La Réunion, <laughs> sorry, a worker named Johnny Beg. Big. Do you know how to pronounce his name? I think it's Beg. Okay. That's my best French. Uh, so he did find this this unfamiliar unfamiliar looking object at the edge of the surf. It was like kind of rectangular. It was about six feet long. It looked like some sort of airplane wing. And it's got all sorts of marine life on it, barnacles and stuff. And presumably he called the La Réunion police, the gendarme.
1: La gendarmerie. Um, so yeah, it was kind of bouncing around in the surf. It looked like it had just come ashore. And it was sort of, you know, the way that things kind of bob and float and bang on the rocks. And they picked it up and they and they put it on the grass. And so uh, the police arrived, photojournalists arrive, And so these images start spreading around the world of the policemen, the gendarmes, uh, flipping it over, looking at it closest up. You see these like funny little barnacles on it. And there's a lot of excitement, um, a lot of you know, carefully phrased headlines like this might be the first piece of debris, and it took a little while um, for the experts to say, "Look, this is definitely a flapron. It's it 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 looks like you would uh, expect a flapron from a triple seven, specifically from the right hand side, to be okay. so this the, and and there are no other triple sevens that have gone missing in the Indian Ocean, so." really strong um suspicion that this is that this is it that we finally got that missing part i'll, I'll be honest I'll,
0: with you i did not yeah. know what a flapperon was I, I know what a flap is and i, I did what not know ron is oh you did not want to i mean that's, i didn't
1: know what it was no i even uh, as
0: a pilot you didn't know what a flaperon was
1: it's it's not something that exists on something like a cessna 172 which is the kind of little plane that i fly okay. it's something particular to bigger airplanes it's it's it, like as the name implies it's a kind of a combination of a flap, which is a piece that a pilot would lower on landing, it makes you, it lets you descend like more slowly and more steeply. If that makes okay. any sense, okay. Um, but it combines the function of that with um, an aileron, which is a piece that that wiggles up and down, and it changes whether you're going to bank right or bank left, and that helps you turn. So it's a kind of a hybrid piece that doesn't really exist on little planes. So I learned about it from this thing coming ashore.
0: I'm looking at a picture of of what an intact flaperon looks like. I'll put that up on the screen for our video users. Uh, It's unmistakably a plane part. Right. And uh, you said it came, they believe it was a right wing, triple seven.
1: Right. Flaperon. it came from the right-hand side, and it was more or less intact, but it had the trailing edge—the part that would have stuck furthest out from the from the wing—had gotten broken off somehow. Okay, and so whether that was through like wave action hitting rocks, or um, you know, on impact, if it had come off, there's a lot of speculation to this day. Nobody really knows.
0: So then, after they determined that this indeed was a triple 777- seven flapper on. I, I see that you did one of your several apology pieces. This one was in New York magazine. And right.
1: So just so people can appreciate what an epical shift this was in the, in the case, up until this time, um, a vast sum of money and, and lots of human effort had been committed to, to searching the, the ocean based entirely only on these mathematical calculations derived from Data that had never been produced in this way by a plane before,
0: yeah.
1: uh, and that arose from a from an event that nobody could explain. So it was a, so to my mind, it was a very very slender thread. And so the question was like, well, if there's no other confirmation, that seems frankly a little bit suspicious to me.
0: Yeah, especially so, since,
1: as we said in the last in the previous two episodes ago, that I had already figured out that there was a way, there was a vulnerability by which this data could be compromised.
0: Right, and you'd already written your, your piece about the spoof, about the possibility right. that it went north, but now right. comes your follow up piece for New York Magazine. I'm just going to read your quote here from sure. it. it. Says, sure. back in February, I explained in New York how sophisticated hijackers might have infiltrated the plane's electronic bay in order to spoof the satellite signals and take the plane north to Kazakhstan. MH370 wreckage on the shores of Réunion makes such explanations unnecessary. Right. So that's
1: that. Right. So I was like, wow. Okay. I had kind of put myself out there um, talking about this possibility that the data might've been spoofed. And I was like, Um, I guess I'm wrong. Oops. (laughs) Um, so I was a little bit, you know, for clemped, I guess, as we say uh, in New York. Um, so, you know, everyone was like, okay, Jeff, you were proven wrong. How do you feel?
0: (laughs) I'm guessing not great.
1: I mean, we've talked before about how, like, I come up with this, like, realization that this data could have been tampered with, it kind of, I I sort of went out alone on a limb talking about it. Um, I didn't want it to be my theory. I didn't want to become, have my ego attached to this idea, but I'm human. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, I felt like I was, as I've used in the past, the phraseology, my ass was hanging out the window and I was, I had made this statement and I didn't want to look ridiculous and this kind of felt like, oh, okay. My saying, look, there's no independent confirmation that this data is accurate. Well, now there's independent confirmation. Well, I remember
0: this both from the Netflix documentary and happening in real time, but a lot of people, or at least some people were like, this is bogus. This is not right. The authenticity of this piece is in question. Right. Uh, there were conspiracy theories already floating around. Everyone's skeptical about everything. There's some general fishiness about where the uh, the number plate was supposed to have been located. It should have been on the outside of the flaperon. It was missing. Yeah. You point out that, well, that could have been a function of the maintenance records kept by Malaysian Airlines. Well, there was a separate issue about the maintenance
1: records. Um, okay. The, it, it was a confusing time. And, you know, Andy, one thing, one of the really dominant, we, we, we spent a lot of time in the last episode talking about what this case is like. Yeah. Um, and we talked about the strangest of the evidence. But one thing we didn't talk about in terms of what this case is like is it has just been overwhelmed with conspiracy theories, people kind of spouting on social media that, like, this isn't true. This is, like, suspicious. They're like, how come you can't explain that there's mangosteen in the cargo hold? There's been there what we've kind of omitted from the previous 17 episodes, which was very much part of the lived experience at the time, was a swamp, a fog of like claims, counterclaims, misinformation, misunderstandings. Some people, um, seemed really bullheaded in their you know, persisting to talk about things that we knew weren't true. Um, it was a frustrating and confusing time, and so when this Flaperon was found, which was the first independent evidence that backed the idea that the plane was in the southern Indian Ocean. Of course, there was a just chorus of voices calling it into question and saying that it was, you know, a part of a conspiracy and, and what and what have you.
0: Well indeed, France could have turned this thing over to the Malaysian authorities. But they decided to keep it on their own for their own, do their own investigation. I, given everything we've talked about and about the lack of transparency from Malaysia, I'm not entirely surprised that they decided to keep it and take it to France. Uh, they delivered it to, to the Direction Generale Armement, which we'll be <laughs> calling the DGA. That's right. France's uh, Weapon Development and Procurement Agency. Right. Uh, I don't know. That sounds actually kind of logical to me, given that I I don't know if the Malaysians were super trustworthy at this point. What What do you think?
1: Yeah, the Malaysians had not really proven themselves to be paragons of openness. And the French also have a history of national pride um they don't like to turn things over to what they call the anglo-saxons which is like the brits and the americans and um canadians and australians and new zealanders and the like Um, so they wanted to they they kept it they didn't really uh they weren't exactly paragons of openness either um and as a result we had these rumors leaking out and, and members of the french press um were were actually kind of contributing to this air of suspicion by saying, oh, they these investigators have found these things that are hard to explain. And you were talking about there was some uncertainty about the part didn't really match the records. And sure enough, it turned out that that there were some holes that had been drilled as part of it. OK, just to back up one step, when an airplane manufacturer makes a plane and these planes typically have like a million pieces, give or take, and some of them don't work or they don't work as well as they're supposed to. So inevitably you have these things called airworthiness directives, where the manufacturer says to the operator of the aircraft, you need to fix this particular thing. And in the case of this flapper on, there had been an airworthiness directive that required some changes to be made to the part. Malaysian Airlines did the work, made a record of the work, but then when they compared that paperwork to the piece that was found, it didn't quite match. Oh. And, and the exact details of this, I don't understand, some people got really excited about it. I personally felt like paperwork doesn't always match what it's supposed to. You know what I mean?
0: Well, at any rate, so they take this thing to Toulouse, and the investig- investigators like use an endoscopic probe, and they actually did find the serial numbers that match the records kept by the manufacturer in Spain. So,
1: right, it's, it's a, a bit of a rarity.
0: Yeah, it's a legit piece, right?
1: Yeah, I mean. One of the other parts, and you sort of briefly alluded to this before, but there was supposed to be a, a like a placard on the, par, on the outside of the wing that had like the serial number on it. And that was not there. And actually in the Netflix documentary, um, Florence DeShangy, the French journalist, yeah. um, makes a big meal out of this and saying that like it's impossible that this could have come off. How, how come it came off? Yeah. And so much of of puzzling to this mystery is about, well, what is, what is just different from what you'd expect and what is actually suspicious. Personally, I feel like if a piece has been banging around in the ocean enough that half of it's come off the trail, as we said, the trailing edge was all kind of like stripped away. So I don't know, pieces fall off it. I, I, I mean, if you, if, if all of the other evidence is suspicious then that could be another piece of it but it's well, ambiguous
0: they went down kind of a wormhole in the documentary or at least i went down a wormhole um about how it could have maybe been taken from a scrap yard or something like that but i i sort of feel like finding the serial numbers on the inside
1: this, this are stuff good on enough the inside for me. this finding the stuff on the inside definitely i think removed any suspicion about the origins of this piece like several um, you know, orders of magnitude down the scale of unlikelihood. Yeah. This very much seems like it would, that it, that it came from MA370 because the, let's say that you wanted to fake it. Let's say that you wanted to make a piece. You wanted to make it seem like it came from MA370. It really didn't. You would have to have your secret agents infiltrate this Aerobus subcontractor in Spain Look at these handwritten records where somebody in hand had written down like what the part was, this sub sub component that makes up this Um It's real James Bond stuff. That seems and, which is like that a, to say it's impossible. It's not no, impossible.
0: We're not saying anything's impossible, but that seems like an extra. I mean, that's that's some intense forgery.
1: And then the, and the question becomes: Well, in the service of what? Yeah, you know, in the service to make it think that the plane is in the Southern Ocean, but Most people think that anyway, so who would be motivated to falsely think it would be in the Southern Ocean? Well, you would say, I mean, I was, I was, I mean, already, like, to the extent that, like, my gears were turning in my brain, I was like, well, okay, is it, would it be impossible for the Russians if they took the plane to take a part off it and put it in the Southern, Southern Ocean or put it right on the shore of Reunion Island? And the answer was, well, no, that wouldn't be that hard at all. Actually, it'd be pretty simple.
0: That seems like a much easier way of doing it than uh, faking a piece from some other. Um... Right.
1: But there's no, it's like there's no reason that any, so there's no, there's no reason for anybody to make a fake part.
0: Okay. All right. Let's get past that. So th- let's, let's, let's just assume that's a legit piece. Right. Yeah. And that gives the investigators some opportunities, right? So then now they can do the re- reverse drift modeling, right? Which
1: that's exactly so there's, what it sounds like. <laughs> you have this piece of evidence. And like, so just the mere existence of this flapron. now that we've stipulated that it does come from MH370, the the, the the mere existence tells us that the plane did go into the Southern Ocean. And now there's, so what else can we learn uh, or how else can this flapron steer us towards solving the mystery? How can it tell us where the plane went in the, other, in the ocean?
0: The other part of it is looking at the organisms on the, you know, the barnacles that are are have attached themselves to the flapperon, and what mm-hmm. kind of species they are, where where what part of the ocean they live in, uh, and that leads to this uh, August twenty first, two thousand fifteen uh, French article from uh, Depeche, mm-hmm. and now let's do some French, Jeff. I want to see how yours. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna try it, and I translated it in my head. Okay, but I had a, actually there were a couple of words that I had a little trouble with. Okay, now, here we go. All
1: right, I'm ready. Taking my glasses. Off in.
0: Selon une experte aeronautique okay. Toulousien qui a qui l'élément l'élément de le n'aurait pas flotter flotte pendant plusieurs mois mm-hmm. à la surface de l'eau mais aurait dérivé plonger entrer deux heures à quelques mètres.
1: Entre that? deux, heures, which means between two. Okay, <laughs> all, Did you all like of my that. French? The just the just of all, of all that is that this piece <laughs> couldn't have floated. It didn't float on the surface. It floated at a depth of several meters.
0: Yeah, the deux thing. They they're de, referring to entre this de two deux, two not, waters. Not like two eggs in between two hours, but right. Two waters. No, no, deux, no. deux, <laughs> between uh, two waters. Uh,
1: <laughs> we're gonna get hate mail. We're gonna deservedly get hate mail. From hey, French dude, speakers. you can
0: go. You want to try the French? Let's see no. how your Duolingo's going. No, uh, monsieur. Okay.
1: <laughs> Duolingo, Oddly, for all, all that I mean. international
0: communications I took, I barely had to use my French in real life. You gotta and keep they, using it. when I went to Paris, they just I'd speak French to them, and they'd speak English back to me. So it was very demeaning.
1: But well. I got. I actually got back into French because of the Air France four four seven. A report was issued, which was it was under the jurisdiction of the French, and a, and, a, and a very interesting report was issued in French. And I kind of like plowed through it, half understanding what they were saying, and I was, and I was thinking, man, I, I took all this French in high school. I, I should use it. It should be usable. Yeah. So and so I, I I kind of brushed on with that, and then it became useful again for for MH three seventy. The French are very, have a very good um, accident investigation agency, and oh. they are, I mean, a lot of the words in aviation are from French because they were the initial, really, because the, this is a whole nother story, but the Wright brothers, having invented the airplane, then kept it secret for 10 years and really left the French to become the premier aviation nation. Hmm. Anyway, that is neither here nor there. But um, the, well, the- Yeah, the kicker of this quote is a between two waters part which, which, which is just a, uh, their way of saying it floated submerged. It was kind of neutrally buoyant. And that really caught my attention because I am a scuba diver. And if you scuba dive, you know how hard it is to maintain neutral buoyancy. You, you actually, as you breathe in and breathe out, you're constantly like rising and sinking. And if you want to float absolutely neutral, you have to kind of hold your breath, which you're not supposed to do. So, um, pieces of Inert, uh, inanimate objects don't float neutrally. It's it's impossible. You either go up or you go down. So how is this possible? And why did they even remark on it? Um, so I was looking at pictures of the of the of the flapperon, of which many were taken when it was resting on the beach before the gendarmes carted it off. And so you could really see it from every single angle. And there were these barnacles growing on every surface, some denser than others, but everywhere. And so, so I love
0: that I love that first of all you also have scuba diving skills. I mean this, <laughs> this is like the mystery that uh it was like your whole life was accumulating for us. French, yeah. it was scuba, it was airplane stuff, but
1: it's like Slum Millionaire. Did you ever see Slum Millionaire? I didn't, but maybe now I should. It's a guy who wins he's like a poor guy and everyone makes fun of him because he shouldn't have any education and he wins this quiz show because they ask him all these obscure things about history and so forth and he knows all the answers because he's had such a diverse life um and it and it does feel like for me like i had spent time in russia i had spent time in malaysia i had spent time in australia i'd you know scuba dived in the indian ocean before it's like all like a lot of the things just kind of weirdly seem to come together it's amazing. Uh,
0: that could be a separate episode. Yeah. Jeff Wise's life and why <laughs> it matters to MH370. Uh, again, I digress. So you, yeah. have, you, have a, you had an email from uh, David Griffin. He was an oceanographer with the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research, research Organization, Cicero. Mm-hmm. He said uh, he was talking about uh, the buoyancy of an inert object. He said it's very hard to build something that will float slightly below the surface right that makes sense to me yeah Uh, he says the probability that an aircraft part does this is minuscule the only way it can do it is if some of the object breaks the surface if it does not break the surface at all it must sink right right so you're saying it's floating or it's sinking it's not both
1: so you know it can float just touching the surface but um but but that's not what they said. In this report, it said several meters under the surface. So what does that even mean? Um, and so I looked at the, the – and I'm trying to decipher what this means. We're, all, we're working on, like, third-hand reports yeah, yeah. and trying to understand what this is all about. And, again, we spent the whole last episode talking about how even the evidence is weird and mysterious. And this is another example – why how, we didn't this we didn't include this in the top five weirdest things. This is sort of like the number six or seven. But why, how did these barnacles come to be living all over the, this piece, every surface? And this is why I think they made this speculation that it floated several meters under the water, because these barnacles are called Lepus anatifera I, I went around and I talked. There's only about six or seven people in the world who study this on a professional basis. It really has no economic value. The only reason people study it is because it's a nuisance. If you put a buoy in the water or you or if you're like sailing across the ocean, these things love to attach to surfaces of things that are floating in the water. Their they're lifestyle. Kind
0: of, they're kind of gross too.
1: They're actually a delicacy. In Portugal, they there's this there's a variant that grows on the rocks. Anyway, they're supposedly delicious. But for the purposes of our present discussion, Let's divert. I mean, I I like to say that like this case involves everything from marine biology to satellite dynamics. And this is the marine biology part.
0: So the fact that you, okay, the fact that you even went there, I think is very impressive. And since you didn't have access to these pieces, you could only rely on the many photographs that were taken of this and you go find... One of the only barnacologists, which isn't a real word, but I like saying it. You find one of the only barnacologists in the world who can identify this as the lepus anatifera, anatifera. And that guy was in New York, right? The one that you talked to?
1: There were, no, there's like six or seven, and I tried to reach out to all of them. There have been more that have come forward since that have studied these piece, these animals. Um, They were very rarely studied. And so there were a lot of questions about them, but there had been some published research looking at questions like, how do they grow? Where do they live? Um, And let me just talk to you a little bit about what these things are like. Yeah, please. They are creatures that live in the open ocean, exclusively in the open ocean. And what they do is in their sort of infant stage they swim around and do whatever little critters plankton they're plankton. plankton. that's the what okay. i'm looking for they're plankton they float around and they do what they do and they probably find little minuscule things to eat but what they're doing when they they kind of reach the stage where they're ready to to go to go to the they're take it ready to take it to the next level and they they look for something floating and it can be anything it could be um uh well in in nature it would be like a, a floating log i um, mean even some like seaweed um, now, in modern times, they'll find like a floating Clorox bottle or um, any kind of plastic debris. a lot of the stuff you that winds up in the ocean they'll grow and go and I talked to this research, researcher who told me she'd even seen these these little cyprids they're called um, att- attached to a paper bag. you throw The, is, the, the, the thing that um, to know about these creatures is that for them anything that they can attach to is extremely valuable real estate. Because okay. it enables it enables their lifestyle. What their lifestyle is, you attach to something hard, you glue your head to the surface, and then you eventually stick your feet into the water and you catch whatever drifts by. And so, so they need they to find something to attach to. And so if you... Um, there was a, a lot was learned about these things because there was a tsunami in Japan and it washed a lot of junk out to sea. And this stuff entered the North Pacific gyre and it wound up coming ashore in the Pacific Northwest in Alaska. And they could see basically how the, the material had floated through the ocean by what species of barnacle attached, how big they were, like how fast they had grown. And so you, you're able to really tell a lot about um, the path that these things have drifted drifted by looking at them, particularly the shells, because their shells are made of this kind of calcium carbonate and their composition varies depending on how warm the water is. Like different impurities will enter into the sort of matrix of this material at different rates, depending on how warm it is. So it's really like a real record. You know, you, you, sometimes scientists will put like an electronic like tag collar on an animal that they're interested in this is almost like a free natural version of that
0: yeah, it's like a tree ring
1: it's oh. like a tree ring exactly and so when scientists saw that this that this piece from mh370 had arrived covered in barnacles this was kind of an exciting prospect because it told them oh there's like all these little data recorders on this thing essentially and we can analyze it but there was another part about it which um made leipus biology really um, relevant, which is that how do these things attach and where do they live? Basically, it's not like a seed landing on soil. These things are, are animals and they're free living animals at first. And so they'll come to a piece that's floating around and they'll explore it and they'll walk around it and they'll sniff it out and they'll see what's the best part for me to attach to. And they like to be in a part that's in the shade. So that's like if there's a part that's on the bottom, they'll attach to that And if the part is like flipping around, they'll try to find a part that stays in the water the most. And so when I looked at this piece and saw that there was barnacles all over it, that implies that the piece was completely covered in water, right? And that indeed is what the French researchers were puzzled by. They're like, this piece seems like it would be totally submerged because there's barnacles all over it and the barnacles live in water. And if you get a buoy or something or sometimes like I went I went searching around looking for pictures of boats that had gotten overturned and washed ashore. And when you look at pieces of debris that float in a stable way in the water, you can see a line where the lepus will live below the water line. And there's usually like a line of algae, which is where the water kind of comes and goes. And so that didn't happen on this. And and so and also the um, the the researchers in in Toulouse put it in water to see how it would float. And it yeah. floated, and we can put up a picture of that too. It floats like quite high. The reason that this was of interest to the researchers was because the other clue that this flapron was going to offer them was an opportunity to do something you mentioned briefly earlier, reverse drift modeling. Mm-hmm. We've talked in a previous episode about how if you know how currents go, um, you can make a probabilistic model of how something that I put in the water today where it will be six months from now. And conversely, if I have a piece, I can run a model backwards and generate a probabilistic model of where it was six months ago. And so... I'll get even more
0: specific on this and then I'm gonna need you to break this down for me because I'm not not sure that this is extremely obvious to people who are hearing this. So maybe you can make it more obvious. Uh, So the... Um, a guy named Pierre Daniel of the organization Matteo France. Mm -hmm. Um, He put out this, or he he has this quote. He says, the buoyancy of the piece, such as it was discovered is rather important. The studies by the DGA hydrodynamic engineering show that under the action of a constant wind, following the initial situation, the piece seems able to drift in two positions with the trailing Mm -hmm. edge or the leading edge facing the wind. The drift angle has the value of 18 degrees or 32 degrees forward or toward the left with the speed of the drift equal to 3.9, 3.29% or 2.76% of the speed of the wind, respectively. Right. Uh, maybe you can turn that into
1: Well, so what he's basically English. saying is that If you put the flapper on in water, see how much it sticks out, and then calculate how much the wind is going to affect its drift, that will give you a very different answer for if you're just, if you ignore the wind entirely because you're imagining that this thing is floating submerged. So if you're several meters underwater, obviously the wind is not going to be relevant at all. And so they had this piece and they were were tasked with running a reverse drift model. And they couldn't figure out if they should run it for a piece that was floating, sticking out of the water, or a piece that wasn't sticking out of the water. And when they did it, they found that you got two completely different answers. In short, and we can put up, they 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 made a chart that's all right. This pe this this report was eventually leaked, and I got my hands on it um, later. It was it was part of an official report, so it's not like it's top secret or anything. But the point is that. If it floated submerged as the barnacles suggested, there was no way it could have gotten to Reunion Island in the timeframe that it did. If it floated out of the water, then it could do it. It it would come from somewhere in the vicinity of the seventh arc. And so you could say, well, this is a mystery, Um, or you could say, well, then it obviously floated sticking out of the water and we'll just forget about the fact that the barnacles somehow grew in the air, which we know they don't. So again, this, this is why I say like the, the, the evidence itself has mysteries. There's, there's a a curious element to this, to this flapron, just in the fact that there's barnacles all over it.
0: So I'm going to try to break this down even further in a okay. more um, elementary sort of way. Okay. If the piece had sunk, it didn't, or sunk somewhat, it didn't. It how it got there was not consistent with the seventh arc. But if it was floating, it was consistent with the seventh arc, but it didn't have the right kind of barnacles and age of the barnacles on them. Am I, I the remember the
1: barnacles? We haven't gotten to yet, but it has to just do with the distribution. The question just becomes okay, assuming that this piece did float from an impact site on the seventh arc or near the seventh arc, um. The only way it could have gotten there is if it floated clear of the water. Uh, part of it was sticking out. And so then the question becomes, well, like, how come there's barnacles growing all over it?
0: So some, in other words, something is not matching up here. And
1: There's a curious element here that weird. doesn't quite, that sort of raises an element of suspicion. Now, so in order to not be too, um, you know, coy, yeah. um, I will admit that I've, very soon after admitting that I'd been wrong about the Russians taking in my 270, (laughs) I started to wonder if I was really wrong. And like, if we look at the bar, if we look at these, if the flap run really carefully, can we convince ourselves that yes, obviously this really did float from the seventh arc. And this was a thing that made me think, huh? I mean, it's, I don't think it's dispositive. I think that maybe barnacles just grow in ways that we don't fully understand. Um, and, and then later I did find pictures of something floating that did sort of seem like the barnacles were growing on a part that was sort of a wash, but not really fully dry. Um, so I don't know, I I don't think it's dispositive, but, but it got me to think, okay, well, let's, let's look closely. Let's look more closely at these Lepus anatifer because as we've touched on a couple of times, there was this other element, which is how old are these barnacles? And then secondarily to that, what was the temperature of the water that they grew in?
0: All this is saying 35 minutes into this podcast that after thousands of simulated drift models, something just doesn't seem right, which makes you think that perhaps something was staged, something something isn't lining up with the fact that this flaperon floated from the seventh arc. Something doesn't match up. Where are the other pieces it was enough it
1: it it raised enough questions in my mind to say, "All right, let's take a deeper look and I have to say that like at the, by this point, almost everybody um and some people had started to think, maybe Jeff Wise is right, maybe there is maybe it is all a bit thin that we're hanging this whole thing on the on these satellite signals. Um, maybe there is a possibility that it was hacked. But then when when the Flatburn was discovered, the door closed. I would say that like ninety-nine yeah. percent of anybody who had been with me or would had been sort of or was sort of spoof curious, uh at that point they were like, No, 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 no. This is, like the the debris is there, it could only be there because it floated there. And I was like, Really? Um because it seems to me like it actually would not be that hard. To put a piece in the ocean, um, and I was like, okay, so what else? Like, what else might indicate some doubt? Yeah, and the and and the answer that I quickly came to was like, well, how old are these barnacles? Because if this flowed, because if this, because it's easy to imagine someone saying. This is a sort of story I was that ran through my head. Imagine that, like you've stolen this airplane, you got away scot-free. Everyone agrees that the pilot took it into the Southern Indian Ocean, where the Inmarsat data says it went. You've actually taken it north, and you're sitting, um, pretty in your um dacha <laughs> in the Siberian <laughs> woods, yeah. yeah. And and you're like feeling very proud of yourself, and you start to see that like people are starting to talk about the fact that like. It's all very thin. And it would be right. nice if you had a piece that actually confirmed it. And so then you go to your um, garbage dump where you've got the pieces of this thing and you take out a flaperon and you send it with your your um, agent down into the ocean and you tell them to stick in the ocean for a little while and then have someone to find it in Reunion Island. Now, is that completely I mean, the whole the whole scenario that i proposed previously involving sneaking into the eBay and like figuring out how to like steer the airplane, all this stuff. That was super, super arcane James Bond stuff. Just taking a piece and sticking it in the ocean seemed to me really simple. And I wondered if like, maybe they like stuck it on the bottom of a boat for a couple months, which is yeah, why-
0: Yeah, let it, let it kind like, of marinate a little bit and then it set it free. Sure.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I, but I said to myself, okay, like what am I going to look at as proof that I'm wrong? Or at least evidence that I'm wrong? And the answer is like, well, if these barnacles are the size of barnacles are after a year and a half, then that would suggest that this thing has been in the water for a year and a half, well before I was raising any questions about it publicly. So that would sort of kind of not completely eliminate the possibility, but make it much less likely. Do you so want to talk about you, that in
0: the next episode or do you want to I think get we should, into like, that? I
1: think we should go long today. I think oh, okay. long. All right. I mean, if you're a man, medical... I'm,
0: I'm, I'm good. I don't have any more notes. So okay. if you want to just start uh, monologuing here on the age of barnacles, I'm. <laughs> I'm going to sit here and listen and ask questions.
1: Good. I think now we should it do it that. Okay. We'll Jeff. Okay. Um, we'll, see. we'll see if disaster strikes as a result of this. Um, i just hang back. So basically, I started to ask around. I said, what do we know? I, I dived into literature. As I said, there's not that many people who study these things. I found a woman who lives in Pennsylvania who's, who is a marine biologist professor, and she has thousands of these shells in her garage. Um, and everyone I talked to, everyone I asked said, these pieces look like they're a couple months old. And this gets back to the biology of Olipus anitifera, which is that it is an organism that evolved to grab onto pieces like wood, which degrades and disintegrates in the ocean. So it has a very, very fast life cycle. It grabs onto a piece. It eats as much as it can, grows as quickly as it can, reproduces, and then it's fulfilled its life mission. It will continue to live for like a pretty long time. I don't even know how long but its mission is to reproduce and, and so I will it will, re, it will, it will reproduce like in a month.
0: So my last note, you know, as we're talking yeah. about July 29, 2015, so that's right. a year and three months or so, four right. months after, after the plane went
1: missing. So, so these things have been growing for like 16 months, but when I ask people who study them, they say that it looks like something you'd expect to find after like, a month, two months, maybe three months, that sort of. And I found, um I, I continued to dig around and I found a, a boat that had, was in the paper down in um, another French island. And it had, it had like broken free in a storm in northwestern Australia and had drifted across not exactly the same route that the flaperon was believed to have drifted, but sort of the same neck of the woods, generally speaking. And it had barnacles that were like about the same size, but it had only been floating for a couple months. And so, okay. um, I can put a link to that. Is as that well. that rowboat picture that we saw? No, that was that was a piece of tsunami debris, I think. Okay, but okay. you can get you see you'll see pieces uh, occasionally. These things will wash ashore, and that they're they're really crazy looking. Like the these 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 animals have a long sort of fleshy stalk and a barnacle a heart like a shell at the end. Yeah, and they look freaky. They look like Medusa basically.
0: And people eat these and. Portugal, did you say?
1: Sure? Um there's a species in Portugal that lives on rocks. The ones that float in the open ocean, like if they if they wash ashore, they'll immediately like die. They don't like being ashore at all. And so and that becomes relevant as future pieces wash up because not very few of them are found with barnacles on them. But that might just be because like crabs and seagulls love to eat these things.
0: Ugh. Gross. Okay. But
1: so but but so quickly um, within, a few, uh, I would say like a month of this piece washing ashore, I've gone from sort of publicly admitting that I was wrong to f- talking to a lot of um, marine biologists and starting to get this like really, really severe doubt that how do we explain that this piece, which has been floating for a year and four months or however you want to call it, um, has, has, has marine life on it that's much, much younger.
0: Do you think that it? I mean, we always talk about credibility, but you've had to apologize on a couple of different occasions, yes. and then you've had to retract those apologies as you've learned more. Uh, does that? Do you think that makes people think that
1: that I'm crazy, or that I'm a bad or crazy, actor? That you're?
0: I, I don't know. I mean, or or that you have such a motive that you keep looking for things to prove yourself right and not? I I, I don't know.
1: No, I think that's a really excellent question. I think that it's human nature to not want to admit that you're wrong. And it's human nature to having been proven wrong to just shut up and go away. Um, I don't see it that way, though. I think that science actually depends on people being willing to change their minds, being willing to look at evidence anew. Um, And... So and that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast with you is is to say let's look at these let's try to divorce our egos from the things that we've said. I mean, yes, credibility is everything. I mean, so much of the problem with this case is that you have people coming out of left field, and we don't know who these people are. They're making very grand and often outrageous claims, and there's just no way to to assess. Uh, their credibility. And I've been kind of in the limelight uh, of this case for a long time. And I mean, I have been wrong on multiple occasions, but I think I've been willing to admit that I'm wrong. Uh, I'm willing to be convinced and I'm willing to change my mind. And I think that's actually essential. Did the MH370
0: community, the the independent group, all those people, like, did they pay any credence to the barnacle stuff or at this point where they're just like, no, we're out. We're done.
1: I think that they, anything that doesn't involve being the crash being in this on the seventh arc in the Southern ocean is just of no interest. It doesn't exist. Um, It's like your dog doesn't want to watch television. It just, it's, it doesn't care what's on the screen. It's not, it's not there. Okay. And so if so, I've been, yeah, I've been kind of left to work through this alone, but um, as we'll see, I wasn't the only one wondering this stuff because um, years later, the Australians f- issued their final report, and there's just a lot of confusion among marine biologists as they can't really, there's nothing. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this in more depth when it comes to the when it comes time to talk about the other pieces that washed up, and there ultimately were about three dozen. Um, none of the pieces has marine life that's consistent with a with a, uh, a drifting f- from March 2014. Super weird. And so it's weird. Is it dispositive? Again, I think that really my, my, my assessment is that nothing is really dispositive. Everything sort of tilts the balance one way or the other. There's, there always can be an innocent explanation for everything and i think at one point what when we get towards the, the the end of this particular journey or this phase of the journey it would be good to take like go th- go run through a list of all the the things all the pieces of evidence that we have and for each of them when you compare it to the one of the theories either that it went south or went north it's either that way because this scenario explains it or because it just happens to be that way by chance and so if the plane did go into the southern indian ocean the fact that none of the life forms are the correct age just comes down to happenstance like maybe a turtle came along and ate all the lepas off and then they had to like recolonize it or maybe the the waters that it drifted through were so poor in nutrients that they weren't able to grow at their normal rate something like that um, you know conversely um, if you know we look at the evidence the the, the evidence about the, the flight simulator Um, Which we'll get into more like that is a piece of evidence that from the northern scenario would have to just be a coincidence. Whereas if you think it went south, that really is that's that it's that way because this this theory explains it. Yeah. And so on each. So for each account, you're weighing each piece and thinking, is this for or is it against? Is it coincidence or is it uh, a result of what occurred? Uh
0: this is the part where I, I mentioned that this podcast is available for, available for sponsorship and we're getting some feedback on that and that's great. Two ways to get a hold of us, well, there are a million ways to get a hold of us, but uh at our website, dive, mh370.com. People can email me at andy at is the part where we tell people to mash that like button. Our subscription numbers are growing quickly, as is our watch time, which is awesome. That's great. And we have that teaser episode up that we worked very hard on last week. Yeah. Uh, that would be the one that I would say probably if you're if if you're watching if you're a fan of this podcast and you want to turn other people onto it, uh, that would be the one I would share personally. Uh, We're all over the internet. We are uh, on Apple Podcasts, we're on YouTube, we're on Facebook, we're on our own website through the Substack platform, taking those comments, responding to them, Amazon Music, Spotify, you name it, and we're going to keep on doing it. Uh, I cannot believe we're this many episodes into this thing, and we we still have so much more to talk about. This thing, has... I know, it's like
1: a receding goal because the more we talk, the more we realize, oh, there's this, and there's this, and people are writing into saying, well, what about this thing? Yeah, we'll get um, there. We'll get there. Of, this guy named Green Dot Aviation has gotten a lot of views of a theory. And they're like, what about that theory? I'm like, uh, okay, maybe we'll do an episode of that too. But listen, jump in, tell us what you think, ask your questions, um, like, r- recommend, uh, and and thank you. Thanks for joining us, and thank you, Andy, for another. Um, you work really hard on this, and I, I appreciate it. So um, you work you know, really hard on it too. It's, a,
0: you, it's it's a it's a collaborative effort, and I'm really having true. a good time with it, Jeff. We'll see you next week uh, for episode 19. Crazy. Thank you guys for watching and listening to Deep Dive MH3. 370. See you next week. So long.